Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. First Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If, it, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Duane. Appreciate you sharing the word with us today. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Let's just, uh, let's bow our heads, all right? And uh, let's just go to the Lord and uh, just together um, ask the Lord to uh, use his word and his Holy Spirit to work in our hearts today uh, as we uh, worship, continue to worship together. Let's pray. Dear Father God in heaven, we, um, we are so grateful for the story as we just heard Jamie's story, your story in his life. We're so grateful for the story that you continue to write uh, in each one of our lives each day. We're grateful, Lord, for the fact that the, uh, the good work that you begin in us, you, do not, uh, you don't stop until it's completed, until you've accomplished everything in our lives that you want to accomplish. And so we're thankful for the fact that you are writing your story through our lives today. Father, we're thankful for your word today. We're thankful for the fact that, that we get to study truth today that we get to study your message for our lives. Father, we're thankful today that we have the Holy Spirit of God that uh, opens our eyes to understand your word, that helps us to see how we can apply it to our lives and empowers us to live out your word. So Father, we thank you for uh, the salvation that we have today, for the word of God that we have today, for the Holy Spirit of God that we have today. Father, we just pray today that you would use this, uh, the word that we share from your word today to really speak to us. Father, we just continue to pray for Jamie and Angie as they're away from us this week, as they've been enjoying a, uh, a retreat time with uh, the fellowship that our church is a part of. We just pray, Father, that their time with that would be profitable, encouraging, beneficial. And we thank you, Lord, that we can be here today. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. I've heard it said, and perhaps you've heard it said, that prosperity is more dangerous for our souls than adversity. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Prosperity is more dangerous for our souls than adversity. Seems like when times are good, we tend to think that we're invincible. We tend to think that um, nothing can touch us, that we're kind of unstoppable. And then along comes an event or maybe a series of events in our lives that kind of rock our world. Maybe they sort of jolt us out of our comfortable security. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we start focusing a bit more on the things that matter most in life. It's kind of an odd thing, but I believe it's true that hard times often wake us up to what matters most in life. Hard times wake us up to what matters most in life. I think we're all pretty much aware that uh, 2020, at least it seems this way, it's kind of been a hard year. At the very least, it's been an odd year, but it's kind of been a hard year. 
For some, this year of 2020 has been kind of a hard year physically. You've struggled with some physical issues. For others, it's been a hard year vocationally, just with everything that's been going on. It's just really kind of changed things so much in terms of our jobs and vocations and those kind of things. For others, it's been a kind of a hard year financially. I think for all of us, it's been a hard year relationally. I mean, we go back to the, the month of March, and we had the stay home, stay safe, and we were basically not a lot out of our houses except for a few, few, a few things. We couldn't see people, couldn't get together at church, couldn't be together with the people we work with, couldn't go out of state and see our extended family. We couldn't do all kinds of things. We were sort of separated and insulated and isolated from other people, and so it's been a hard year. It's been a hard year relationally. If you're a parent of a school-age child, or maybe you have several school-age children, I think if, if we were to ask you, you would say, you know, at the very least, it has been an odd year, having the kids at home so much. I mean, it seemed like summer vacation began in March, and, and it's still, for some, they're still studying at home, still learning at home. So maybe it's been an odd year. Maybe it's been a, a hard year if you're the parent of school-age children. Certainly for our nation, it's been a... Uh, I think it's been, a, it's been kind of a hard year of unrest for our nation. I don't even know what, what words to use, but it's been a, a year of sort of social unrest and racial unrest and political unrest and, and economic unrest. And, you know, you think about all that, and I think we need to step back and say, you know, maybe, just maybe, that's not all bad. Maybe that's not all bad. And I say that because, as I mentioned a moment ago, hard times often wake us up. They often wake us up to what matters most in life. So maybe we ought to think about that question, that statement. What actually matters most in life? Just think about it for a moment. What matters most in life? Or maybe we could state it better this way. We could ask it this way. What matters most in life to God? If we were to ask God the question, what matters most in life, what would God say? What would, how would God answer that question, what matters most in life? Well, just a few moments ago, Dwayne read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'd like to reread those opening three verses of that passage, and maybe this will help us to answer the question, what it is that matters most in life, or what does God think matters most in life? Again, follow along as I read those opening three verses. God says... If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm just a noisy gong, I'm just a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing." Now, I think there's a lot of things that we could take from these opening three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, but I think one of the things we could take away from these verses is that God is telling us that he wants us to understand something that is very vital, something that is very critical, something that is very important, and that is that the thing that matters most in life is love. The thing that matters most in life is love. I mean, just look at what the writer says here in these opening three verses. He tells us in verse 1 that if I don't live a life of love, then nothing I say will matter. If I don't live a life of love, then nothing that I say will matter. Look at verse 1. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. I mean, just process that for a moment. When I speak, I just speak for one person, right? In fact, there's been many times in my life, at least in my married life, when I thought I was speaking for both of Lynn and I, and Lynn has taken me to the side and said, uh, sweetheart, that might be your thought on the matter, but that's not necessarily my thought on the matter. So most often when I speak and most often when you speak, we're speaking for one person. But what if we could speak for a plurality of people? What if we could speak for a multitude of men or a multitude of women? What if we could have that kind of, that kind of influence, that we were a spokesperson for a number of people? If I spoke in the tongues of men... Or even better, what if I spoke in the tongue of angels? Now, again, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about what angels talk about. And we don't have uh, uh, any information given to us that really outlines for us what they talk about on a daily basis. I don't think they talk about sports. I don't think they talk about the weather. I'm certain they don't talk about politics or it wouldn't be heaven. 
So what is it the angels talk about? Well, the Bible gives us a little insight into what angels talk about. In the Bible, we oftentimes see angels giving proclamations from God. They're giving information from God. For instance, at the birth of Jesus Christ, it was the angels that spoke to Mary and then Joseph and then to the shepherds, to the wise men, and them telling them about the birth of Jesus. So they are proclaiming information from God. Other places in Scripture, we see angels praising God, worshiping God. So when we think about the tongues of angels or speaking with the tongues of angels, we think of a tongue that would be constantly either proclaiming truth from God or praising God. That would be great to be able to go through my entire day just proclaiming truth from God and praising God. And yet here in this text, we're told very clearly that even if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I don't have love, it's just noise. It's just noise. It's just like a gong or a cymbal. It's just noise. And I think you and I, at least myself, I can speak for, I think we tend to get impressed by good communicators, whether it's in the political sphere or the entertainment sphere or even in the church sphere. We tend to be impressed by people that are good communicators, people that are good spokespeople. We like that. We're impressed by that. But God says, that doesn't impress me at all. God says, I don't care what you say or how well you say it. I want to know if your life is a life of love. So God tells us without love, nothing I say will matter. That's true at work, true at home, true when I'm out in the community, true when I'm gathered together with other people in relationships. God says it doesn't matter. Nothing I say will matter unless I live a life of love. You'll also notice here that God says, if I don't live a life of love, then nothing I know will matter. Nothing I know will matter. Look at verse 2. He says in verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries, if I have all knowledge. I mean, just process that for a moment. If I had prophetic powers. Now, again, we go back to the Old Testament. You think, well, what did the prophets primarily do? Well, they primarily did two things. Number one, they would sort of reiterate truth from God that had already been given. You know, you go through Jeremiah and Isaiah and other prophets of the Old Testament, and they're oftentimes saying, God said this, and God said this, and God told us this, and God has given us this. So they're oftentimes reiterating information that God has already given us. And in addition to that, they're oftentimes giving new information from God. So they're either sort of forth-telling given truth from God, or they are foretelling new truth from God. Well, what if I could do that? What if I had that kind of power to both tell truth from God and give new truth from God? That would be pretty impressive. Or, or what, if I, what if I had all understanding? What if I had all knowledge? What if I graduated with highest honors? What if I had the IQ of a genius? What if I was a walking Bible encyclopedia? What does God say? God says, if I don't live a life of love, it's nothing. In fact, he says more than that. He not only says it's nothing, he says, I am nothing. I'm just a big zero. My life is just a waste without love. So without love, nothing I know will matter. And then look at the third thing we're told here in these opening verses. He says, if I don't live a life of love, then nothing I believe will matter. Nothing I believe will matter. He says in verse 2, if I have all faith, doesn't say if I have 10% faith or 20% faith or even 50% faith. Doesn't say if I have 75% faith. He said if I have all faith, all faith. In fact, faith so great that I could remove a mountain, but I have not love, I am nothing. I mean, let's be truthful. If I had the faith to move a mountain or remove a mountain, that would be pretty impressive, wouldn't it? I mean, if I could remove the entire range of the Rocky Mountains, I mean, wouldn't that get your attention? I mean, that'd be pretty spectacular, right? I mean, think of the story in the Old Testament of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Asherah when they were on Mount Carmel. 
You may remember the story that they gathered there on Mount Carmel and the false prophets set up their altar and put their sacrifice on it and Elijah set up his altar and put the sacrifice on it and all day long the prophets of Baal and Asherah, they cried out to their false gods asking them to send fire and burn up the, their offering and they, 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 they cried out and they prayed and they danced and the text tells us they cut themselves and, and Elijah kind of made fun at them and said, well, maybe your God is on vacation or maybe, maybe your God's taking a nap or you know, he's a busy guy. He's got a lot on his mind. He's just not available right now. And so he kind of mocked them and kind of uh, picked on them a little bit. And finally, when their time was over, it turned to Elijah. And you remember the story. Elijah just sent up a very quick but very faith-filled prayer to God and said, God, prove to us who you are. And God sent down fire from heaven, and it not only burned up the sacrifice, it burned up the wood, it burned up the stones, it burned up the water all around. There was nothing left on the top of that mountain but burnt dirt. That was it. That's pretty impressive. But what if Elijah had said to God, I don't want you to just burn up the altar and everything around it. I want you to remove the whole mountain. Let's just eliminate Mount Carmel. That would have even been more impressive, would it not? And yet God says here in this text, even if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, it's nothing. I'm nothing. So the issue is, do we love God and do we love others? It takes more than the faith of a miracle worker to make a difference. Without love, nothing, I believe, will matter. And then look what he says in verse 3. He says, if I don't live a life of love, not only will nothing I say matter, not only will nothing I know matter, not only will nothing I believe matter, but he says, nothing I give will matter. He writes in verse three, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned. In other words, if, if, if Lynn and I, if my wife and I, if we were to, to sell our house today and take the proceeds from that sale, we have two vehicles. If we were to sell those vehicles today and take the proceeds from the sale of those vehicles, if we were to take every, every dollar of savings that we have in the checking account, the savings account, and retirement income, and that kind of thing, if we were to take every single dime of that and give it away to the, the most worthy cause imaginable, if I was to be willing to, to give my life to take a stand for something that I really believed in, if I was to do all of that, God says, if I was to do that without love, it just doesn't count. It just doesn't count. It makes no difference. God says the greatest acts of giving, the greatest acts of sacrifice accomplish absolutely nothing without love. They accomplish nothing without love. There's no benefit. There's no gain. Without love, nothing I give matters. Nothing I give matters. Then here's a final thought that the text gives us in these opening three verses. And that is that if I don't live a life of love, nothing I accomplish will matter. One of the uh, kind of versions or paraphrases of the Bible that I often like to read is called The Message. It's written by a man by the name of Eugene Peterson. And uh, when he paraphrases this section on 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, he ends with this statement. And I think it's a good summary statement. He ends it by stating this, no matter what I say or what I believe or what I do, I am bankrupt without love. I am bankrupt without love. In other words, we can rack up an incredible list of personal achievements. We can be Time Magazine's person of the year. We can win a Nobel Peace Prize. We can have incredible success in the things that we give ourselves to. But God says it isn't worth anything, anything, if I don't have love, if I don't have love. So God says, I can have the eloquence of a great orator. I can have the knowledge of a genius. I can have the faith of a miracle worker. I can have the generosity of a world-renowned philanthropist. I can have achievements. I can have the achievements of an entertainment superstar. But if I don't have love, it's worth zero. I'm worth zero. It doesn't count. So what is God saying in these opening three verses of this chapter? I think at least one of the things he's saying is that what matters most in life is love. What matters most in life is love. Think along with me at uh, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, uh, a lawyer, uh, an Old Testament lawyer, an expert in the law came to Jesus, and uh, though his motive was bad, I think his question was a good question, and he said to Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? 
And in Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus responded, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, usually we stop right there, but there's more to it. Jesus went on to say, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When Jesus spoke of all the law and the prophets, he was speaking of the Old Testament in its entirety. Now, let's remember, they didn't have a New Testament at this point in time. So he's referring to Scripture in its entirety. Jesus was saying that you can take the entirety of Scripture, all of the word that God has given, and you boil it down to one thing, and that is love God and love neighbor. So when it comes to the Old Testament, Scripture, what's the message? The message is that what matters most in life is, thank you, it's love. That's what matters most in life. What matters most in life is love. Well, if love truly is what matters most in life, then perhaps the most important question in life is what in the world is love? What in the world is love? If it's really what matters most in life, and it seems to be what Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 13, seems to be what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, seems to be the message of the entire written scripture up to that point in time. Well, if love is what matters most in life, then what in the world is love? I mean, think about it. We use the word love all the time, don't we? I mean, uh, my parents are uh, up in their upper 80s, and they live just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And they have a number of health concerns. And with that, we've been concerned about their health going through this COVID thing because of their age and because of the health concerns that they have. You know, we've been thinking about that a lot. So, so I've been a little more uh, uh, persistent about calling them and talking to them every week and seeing how they're doing. And one of the things that I, I've tried to do every time I talk to my mom or talk to my dad is to say to them, Mom, I love you. Dad, I love you. Because, you know, they're in their upper 80s. They're, they have health concerns. We've got this COVID thing going on. I, I don't know. Something could happen to one of them this week. I don't know. And I don't want to know that the last time I talked to them on the phone, I failed to say, I love you. So we say, I love my family. We say we love our country. I, I know our country has problems. I know we have a lot of things we need to work on. Uh, I say, I love my family. My family has problems. We got things we need to work on, right? We say things like, uh, we love sunsets at Silver Beach. You know, we used to write love letters. We still have love songs. We still enjoy love stories. So we, we think a lot about love. We talk a lot about love. Love is a, a central theme to, to much of what goes around us in our lives. But what is love? What is love? Well, we're going to take four Sundays today, the last Sunday in November, the 29th, and the first two Sundays in January, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 7, and seek to answer the question, what is love? What is love? But let's begin this morning with just a couple of, a couple of foundational thoughts, all right, that help us to build a foundation for understanding and defining what is love. What does the Bible ultimately teach us about love? Four things. Number one, the Bible teaches us that love is a command. Love is a command. We just read it a moment ago from Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, didn't we? God said I have a, that the first and greatest commandment is love God with all your being. The second greatest commandment is, is to love a na- our neighbor like we love ourselves. He didn't say I have two suggestions, two good ideas. He said, no, there's two commandments, two commandments. It's not optional. And then Jesus added to that in John chapter 13, in verse 34, Jesus added a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. He didn't say a new suggestion that I give to you or a new you know, idea that you might want to consider occasionally. He didn't say that. He said a new commandment that I give to you, to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And then in 2 John 1, 6, we read this, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. So the Bible teaches that love is a command. And because love is commanded, that means that at its basic essence, ultimately, love is not an emotion. Now, love produces emotions, 
But love at its very essence, at its foundation, it is not an emotion. It is not a feeling because you can't command feelings. You know, I can't go around and command you to be happy. I cannot command you to be sad. Get that smile off your face. I'm commanding you to be sad. You can't do that. The guy's smiling. He's just a happy guy, okay? You can't command feelings. So if love is a command, then love can't at its essence be an emotion or being a feeling. It's more than that. Second thing the Bible teaches is that love is a choice. Love is a choice. In other words, we choose to love or we choose not to love. In the very next chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 1, Paul begins that chapter with a verb, and he simply says, pursue love. In other words, go after it, chase it, choose it, do it. Choose love, pursue love, make the choice. It's a volitional act of the will. Go after it. You know, I think that destroys kind of another myth that we have about love. One of the myths is that love is an emotion. The other myth that we have about love is that uh, love is sort of uncontrollable, that love is just sort of accidental. I mean, think of some of the phrases that we use in referring to love. People say, I fell in love like I fell into a sinkhole. You know, it was just accidental. You know, I was just going along in my life. Everything was normal. Suddenly, I I just fell in love. You know, it's just sort of an odd thing. I didn't have any control over it. It was just sort of an accident. Or we use phrases like, you know, it was, it was love at first sight. You know, I just, just saw her walking down the street, and it was like, wow, you know? And it was just this sudden thing of, of love. There was no choice. I had no volition in it. It was just sort of accidental. It just kind of came over me. No, the Bible tells us that love is a choice. It's a choice, all right? And we have control over our choices, you know, I hear people sometimes say, you know, that I just, I, just, I just don't love that person anymore. You know, I kind of fell in love with that person. Now I guess I just climbed out of the hole and I guess I just fell out of love with that person, right? It was kind of accidental, fell into it, and now I've kind of fallen out of it. You know, the Bible wouldn't teach that. If we're going to be honest about this and we're going to understand that love is a choice, then we need to rephrase that and we need to say, I'm choosing not to love that person anymore. Now, maybe they're hard to love, and maybe they don't ever reciprocate the love, and that makes that love very, very difficult, but I can still choose to do it. It still comes down to a choice. We could choose to keep loving that person even when they don't reciprocate. Not easy, but that's our choice. You see, love is giving a person what they need. Love is committing, uh, is, is committing to the well-being of another person without any guarantee that they're going to love back. That's love. It's a choice. It's what the Bible teaches. That's why we're told to pursue it, to make the choice, to go after it. So the Bible teaches that love is a command. It teaches that love is a choice. It also teaches that love is a conduct. It's a conduct. It's a behavior. It's an action. It's something that we do. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18, God says this in his word, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but let us love in deed and in truth. In other words, love is more than just conversation. Love is more than just sentimental feeling. Love is, love is more than, a, uh, than, a, uh, than a, a, a pretty Hallmark card. Not that cards are wrong, but it's more than that. It's a conduct. Love is an action. It's a conduct. So every day, God puts right in front of my nose, and probably right in front of your nose, opportunities to love. We have those opportunities to love. I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. My problem is, I'm oftentimes too busy. I'm oftentimes too distracted. How many times have I thought, I need to text that person? I need to email that person. I need to call that person. I need to give them that word of encouragement. I need to go next door and talk to my neighbor. I have these great intentions, but great intentions don't equal love. Why? Because love is a conduct. It's not an intention. It's doing something. It's taking an action. I need to go next door to that neighbor. I need to act on those intentions. I need to do something. God says, God says it's what matters most in life. It's the most important thing in life. That's why he commands it. That's why we have the choice to do it. That's why it's a conduct. It's something we can actually do. And then a fourth kind of foundational thought, and that is that the Bible teaches that love 
is a commitment. It's a commitment. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, we read, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. You notice this text talks about abiding in love. It talks about love being something that I rest in, that I'm committed to. Something about love being durable, being long-lasting. Love keeps on loving whether I feel like it or not. Love abide. Love, love commits. So, biblically speaking, love is a command, a choice, a conduct, a commitment. So, what that says to me and what it says to you, what it says to us, is that we need to intentionally and consistently choose to practice love. We need to intentionally and consistently choose to practice love. Well, what does that involve? What is love? Well, if we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4, look at what it says in the opening phrase. Love is patient and kind. Love is patient and kind. So if we're going to answer the question, what is love? And if we're going to intentionally and consistently practice love, then we need to understand what is kindness. What does kindness look like? What is involved in kindness? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us that love is kind. It's kind. So what is kindness? Well, Jesus actually told us a story. It's actually a very, very familiar story. Found it in Luke's gospel chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. And I think it's one of those stories that Jesus told us because it's an important story because it really captures the essence of what does it look like to live a life of kindness? What does it look like to live a life of love? What does it look like to do what matters most in life? So follow along as I, as I just read, again, very, very familiar verses, but this story Jesus told that really gets to the heart of kindness. In Luke 10, verse 30, Jesus said this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and this man fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him. Uh, they departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So this is kind of the story of, 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 of four men, right? But specifically, it's the story of, of three men. Three men that make choices. The, the first one that came along and saw this crime scene, his choice was to keep his distance. His choice was to, uh, a choice of, of avoidance to the, to the whole thing. He, he thought to himself, perhaps, that if I get too close, I might have to get involved. If I get involved, there might be a cost. So here's this priest walking down the road. He sees the man who's been mugged and beaten and left half dead, and he thinks, I'm just going to keep my distance. I'm not going to get involved. And then a Levite comes down the road. Levite's a little different. He's a little more curious, but he's still uninvolved. He walks over to the guy who's been victimized. He sees the guy laying there naked and bleeding. In fact, in verse 32, the, the word that is used for the Levite seeing this man is the word to stare. So he stares at this man. With the priest, the word used for see is a fleeting glance. So the priest just gave a fleeting glance. The, the Levite actually stares at this guy. So he stares at the guy, but then he goes back to the other side of the road and he walks away. He sees the problem. He understands the problem. He's aware, but he's apathetic. He's curious, but he's uninvolved. And then along comes the Samaritan. And what's his reaction? Well, I think in essence, his reaction is treat others how I'd want to be treated. Treat others how I'd want to be treated. It says in verse 33 that he saw the man, he stared at the man, and then he had compassion for the man. 
He had compassion for the man. Folks, that's, that's kindness. That's what kindness is. So what I'd like to do in the final minutes that we have together this morning is to look at this story of the Good Samaritan and try to draw out from this story sort of four steps that you and I need to take each day if I'm going to grow in a lifestyle of kindness, if I'm going to grow in a lifestyle of love, if I'm going to grow in what matters most in life. So let's quickly look at these things. Number one, step number one, if I'm going to live a life of kindness, then I need to develop sensitivity to the needs of people. Sensitivity to the needs of people. Kindness always begins with our eyes. Kindness always begins with the way we observe things and observe people. We need to have eyes that see the need. We need to have eyes that see the need first. That's the starting point. If I want to become a kinder person, a more loving person, if I want what matters most in life to really absorb more of my life, then I've got to open my eyes. I've got to become more observant of the needs of people around me. I've got to be more sensitive to their needs. So what that's telling us is that hurry is the death of kindness. And therefore, hurry is the death of love. Hurry is the death of of really what matters most in life. If I'm going to become a kinder person, I've got to slow down. But I'm so distracted with so many other things. I don't have time to be kind. I don't have time to become more loving. I don't have time to do what matters most. So you and I, we got to slow down because hurry is the death of kindness. Maybe we, maybe we could illustrate it this way. Let's say that, uh, let's say that uh, I went up to my wife this afternoon and I said, sweetheart, um, I got this idea. I want to travel across America. I want to I wanna dip my, um, my, uh, my left foot in the Atlantic Ocean, travel across America, and dip my right foot in the Pacific Ocean. I want to I see what, what America is, is really like. And though my wife would be skeptical about that a little bit, she would probably say, well, okay. And then she would ask, well, how are we going to do that? And my first suggestion would be, well, let's take a plane. We can dip our foot in the Atlantic Ocean, hop on a plane in Maine, fly a few hours to California, get off in San Francisco or LA, get off the plane, go to the Pacific Ocean, dip our other foot in the Pacific Ocean. We can see America in one day. And she'd look at me and say, well, you know, Mark, that would be quick, but we wouldn't really see very much. You said you really wanted to see America. So then I could look at her and i say, well, all right, um, what if we took a train? You know, a train would be slower, and we could get on a train in Maine, take Amtrak all the way across America. It would probably take three or four days to get across America taking a train. And again, she'd look at me and say, well, you know, Mark, that's, that's a better idea. We'd see more of America taking a train than we would a plane. And then she'd look at me and said, I thought you said you really wanted to see America. So then I'd say, well, what if we took the car? What if we went out to Maine, rented a car, got in the car in Maine, and it'd probably take us a couple of weeks to get all the way to California from Maine taking a car. And she said, well, you know, that would even be better. We'd see a whole lot more. But then she'd look at me and she'd say, Mark, if you really want to see America, let's walk. Why is that true? Because the slower we go, the more we see. And that is so true with the needs of people. The slower I go, the more I see. The starting point to kindness is to say, God, please open my eyes to see the needs of people around me. You know how God's going to respond? Two words, slow down. God's going to say it's not rocket science. It's not even deep theological stuff. It's just slow down. Slow down. Slow down. God is going to say, slow down, because kindness starts with awareness. Kindness starts by observing what's happening in in, in the lives of people around me. So if I'm going to take some steps toward a lifestyle of kindness, a lifestyle of love, a lifestyle toward what matters most, then I've got to develop sensitivity to the needs of people. I've got to slow down so I can see the needs. Here's the second step. Sympathize with people's pain. 
sympathize with people's pain. You know, it's not enough to just see their need. We've got to sympathize with their pain. Again, go back to the story of the Good Samaritan. It says that the Good Samaritan came upon the crime scene. He walks over. He stares at the guy. He sees the need. He observes it with his eyes. But then you notice in verse 33, it says, he had compassion. So first his eyes kicked in, and then his heart kicked in. His heart kicked in. So how do I increase my ability to be more sympathetic? Well, here's a thought. It all involves learning to listen. Learning to listen. Listening is the secret to genuine sympathy. The better listener I become, the more sympathetic I become. And what's true of me is also true of you. The better listeners we all become, the more sympathetic we'll become. There's an author by the name of Joe Bailey. A couple of years ago, he, several years ago, actually, he wrote a book called A View from a Hearse. Not a very nice title, right? A View from a Hearse, right? Probably not the, I don't think it made the top 10 New York Times bestseller list. But yet it's a book where, where um, uh, Joe shares his own experience of grief, of losing uh, a loved one in his family. And I just want to read to you one paragraph from that book because it kind of gets at what we're talking about here. Joe Bailey writes this in his book, A View from a Hearse. He said, I was sitting, torn by grief, and somebody came along and talked to me. They talked to me about God's dealings of, of why it happened. They talked to me about hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true, but I was unmoved except to wish that he would go away, and he finally did. Then another one came. He sat beside me. He didn't talk at all. He didn't ask me any leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. What's the point? The point is sympathy, empathy, involves our ears. It involves our ears. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, God writes, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I don't know about you, but when I'm going through a painful experience, I appreciate when somebody will listen to me. I appreciate when somebody will hear me out. I appreciate when somebody will take the time to just let me sort of dump my load and kind of, kind of, kind of expose my heart and kind of, kind of say all that. Well, God simply says, sure you like that. We'll do the same thing to others. Bear their burdens. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, we read this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What are those verses telling us? They're telling us that God walks with us through the problems in our lives so we can walk with others through their problems, so we can be sympathetic to other people when they go through similar circumstances. Every problem we go through is an opportunity to learn how to be more sympathetic. And to do that, I have got to be willing to listen, to listen. So if we're serious about becoming a kinder person, if we're serious about um, what matters most in life, if we're serious about this matter of living a life of love, then it starts by watching. That's step one. And step two is listening. Watching and listening. Sensitivity and sympathy. Here's the third one. Step number three. Seize the moment. Seize the moment. Not only do I need to sympathize with the need of the person and take time to see the need, not only do I have to sympathize with their pain, really listen to what's going on in their life and listen to the problem, but then I got to seize the moment. I got to seize the moment. Don't wait. Don't delay. Don't procrastinate. Do, 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 what, do what you can in the moment. I mean, look again at the story of the Good Samaritan. Look at verse 34. It says, he went to the man who had been mugged and, and, and left naked and half dead. It says, he went to him. He bound his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. What did he do? He took immediate action. He seized the moment. He used what he had. He had some wine. What does wine have in it? It has alcohol in it. It's an antiseptic. So, of course, he poured the wine on the wounds. 
It says he poured on oil. Oil would help soothe the wounds, maybe block out some of the germs. It says he bound the the wounds. Now, folks, I don't know if the Good Samaritan had a first aid kit. I'm going to assume for a moment he didn't. I don't even think there were boxes of Band-Aids in that day. So he probably doesn't have a first aid kit. He probably doesn't have any Band-Aids. He's probably got the clothes on his back, plus maybe another set or two of clothes in the satchel that he's got on his animal. So what does he do? He takes his shirt off and starts ripping it into Band-Aids and starts wrapping it around this guy. He seizes the moment. He just seizes the moment. He takes immediate action. He did what he could with what he had at the moment. Folks, all around us, are those that are kind of the walking wounded, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, financially. They need our love. They need our kindness. Let's not wait for better conditions. Let's not wait to the day when my to-do list is a little shorter than it is today. Let's not say, I'll call them in a few days or a few weeks. Let's do what we can now. Let's seize the moment. Let's be kind. Let's love. Let's do what matters most in life. And if I'm going to seize the moment, then that means I got to be willing to be interrupted because rarely does kindness happen on my schedule. I can't speak for you, but I literally, basically every day of my life, I put together a to-do list. I literally write it out, you know? And I just, part of it is just old age, you know? And if I don't write it down, I forget it, you know, and I don't do it. But part of it is just habit. Can I be honest with you? Looking back over 10 years, 20, 30 years of my life, And almost every day writing out a to-do list, I can never remember one time when on my to-do list I wrote, be kind. Isn't that tragic? I, I wrote, mow the lawn. I wrote, wash the car. I wrote, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But I can't ever remember one time writing on my to-do list, be kind. That's, that's a tragedy. And I got to be willing to be interrupted. Kindness takes time, but it's what matters most in life. If I'm going to seize the moment, not only do I need to be willing to be interrupted, I got to be willing to take some risks. I mean, this good Samaritan took some big time risks. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho was not a road that you spent a lot of time on. It was a road that was notorious for, for criminal activity. And so the quicker you got from your one destination to the other destination, the better. I mean, this good Samaritan, he could say, you know, he could have thought to himself, what, what if I don't know what to say? Or, or what, if I, what if he asked me to do something I can't do? Or what if I feel inadequate? Or what if I feel dumb? Or what if I, if I help them with their pain, then I've got to face my own pain? You know, the good Samaritan could have got all caught up in all these fears and did nothing. But instead, he seized the moment. You see, how quick or the question is, how quick are we when we sense a need and sympathize with a need, how quick are we to seize the moment and spontaneously act? That's part of kindness. That's what this story is teaching us. It's teaching us about what matters most in life, teaching us about, about love, teaching us about kindness. And here's, here's one more step. Spend whatever it takes. Spend whatever it takes. There's always a cost to kindness, It inevitably costs us time and money and energy of not getting all the things done on our to-do list. It sometimes costs privacy. Sometimes it costs reputation. I mean, look at verse 34. It says, he went to him, bound his wounds, poured on oil, poured on wine, set him on his animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he takes two denarii, gives it to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. Whatever you spend, if it takes more than the two denarii, when I come back, I'll repay you in full. So what does he do? He ministers first aid at the scene of the crime. He puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn. He nurses him through the night. He pays the bill for that night. He leaves two denarii. What was a denarii? A denarii was a normal day's wage in Jesus' day. So he basically goes to the innkeeper and says, I'm paying you for two days to give two days of care to this guy. I want you to give him your full-time care, two days. I'm going to pay you two full days wage to take care of this guy. And if it takes three or four days to take care of this guy, when I get back, I'll cover the cost of that. I'll pay the last third, third day, fourth day. I'll pay whatever it takes. He spent whatever it took. And what did he gain from this? What did the good Samaritan gain from all of this? Somebody might say, well, he, he gained nothing. He didn't even know the guy's name. He just walked away, maybe never saw him again. So, you know, our first thought might be, this guy gained nothing. I disagree. 
I think the Good Samaritan gained everything because the Good Samaritan did what, did what matters most in life. And there's no bigger gain than love. There's no bigger benefit than love. So the Good Samaritan gained everything. He gained absolutely everything. Kindness, love, is doing something for somebody without expecting anything in return. It's spending whatever it takes. So the question for me today, and perhaps the question for you today is, will I choose to do what matters most? Aren't we thankful that Jesus did? And aren't we thankful that Jesus does? What is the essence of the gospel? The essence of the gospel is that the Son of God was sensitive to my needs. That the Son of God sympathized with my pain. That the Son of God seized the moment and he spent whatever it took. What did Jesus do? He loved. What did Jesus do? He did what matters most. And what does Jesus say to you and I over and over and over again in the New Testament? He simply says, follow me. Follow me. Not rocket science. Not even real theological. Follow me. Follow me. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we we thank you for We thank you for practical truth from your word. We thank you, Lord, for letting us know and opening our eyes to understand what it is that matters most in life. Lord, help us to realize that that loving God and loving others and loving, you know, uh, or loving our neighbor and loving each other as you've loved us, that there's nothing more important. Lord, help us to realize in in this day and age where we, we hear so many voices so many people are giving their opinions on different things and we're, we're bombarded by media and stuff and all this wah, wah, wah and talk and, and this and that and the other thing. You look at all that and you say, man, none of that matters without love. Help us to realize, Lord, that love really is what matters most. And help us to understand that love is something that we need to uh, consistently and uh, uh, constantly uh, practice in our lives. And it starts with kindness. So Lord, help us to be like you were to us. Help us to be like like the Good Samaritan was in the story. Lord, help us to, to make the investment this week to love. Help us to open our eyes, slow down, to really see the needs of people. Lord, help us to open our ears this week, to take the time to really have compassion and be able to sympathize with what they're going through. Lord, might I be willing to seize the moment this week and spend whatever it takes. Father, I'm so thankful that in your love, your son did that for me. And he didn't just do it on the day he died on the cross. He didn't just do it on the day he saved my soul. He's doing it today. And he's going to do it tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up and my Savior is going to be sensitive to my needs. He's going to be sympathetic to my pain. He's going to seize the moment tomorrow and he's going to do whatever it takes to continue the work that he's begun in my life. He will love me tomorrow. He will be kind tomorrow. He will model it before me tomorrow. And he will say to us, follow me, follow me. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.